come to the scripture that you would please pray with me. Father in heaven, we do this every week at your command, at your invitation. You said that you have made the Sabbath, this day of rest for us, not as an enslavement, but rather as a blessing that we can stop from our labors and gaze upon you, get everything in right perspective so that we know who we are, we know who you are, uh, we know how we're to live. And so, Father, help us now as we gaze upon you. Put, I pray, life in perspective for us. Enable us to live. As we come to your word, I pray that it is indeed wisdom and grace to us that it's strength and help to us. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, or click or whatever device you're using uh, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, please. Psalm 51. You have um, prayed this already, but now we want to consider it. Hear the word of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. I'm sorry, ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open My lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. There will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and bulls will be offered to you on your altar. Now, as we began this last Sunday, we did by asking this question. The question was, how are we to respond to our own sin, to an awareness, an understanding, to an awareness of our own sin? How are we to respond uh, to that? How are we to respond when sin is unmasked? That is, when we really see its intent. How do we respond when we're convicted in it and by it, that is, we're convinced that this is really sin and, and, and it 
digs deep within us, this understanding. How do we respond then to it? We came in asking that question to this particular psalm because it's a psalm that's been given to us through David by the Holy Spirit that will enable us to do just that. Because you see, this comes out of David's life, but he wrote it for the whole church, the church in the Old Testament and ancient Israel, obviously, and and then carries on to us as well. You remember that in the heading, it says that it's for the choir master, meaning that everyone was to sing it. This was to become part of everyone's life, everyone's heart, if you will, everyone's mind, if you will. And uh, it was it was written by David uh, on the occasion of his own being convinced, convicted of the sin that's so well known uh, with Bathsheba. You remember that situation. He sees this beautiful woman. He invites her to his, uh, his home. Uh, he has an affair with her, if you will. Complication. She becomes pregnant. David decides he needs to hide that sin, cover it up, uh, make it look as if her husband Uriah is really the father. And so Uriah, who was uh, in war, in battle, He brings him home, thinking that everyone will think, well, while he was home, that's when the child was conceived, so it's really his. That didn't work because Uriah was an honorable man and wouldn't go and be with his wife while his men were out in the field. Uh, And so David devised another plan, which was essentially to have Uriah killed. He would send him into the forefront of the battle. The other men would retreat. Uriah would be there vulnerable, and he would die. That happened after a bit of grieving Bathsheba then came to David and became his his wife all of that covered up what was um, uh, very distressing to us and also frightening was that David could deny that sin for many many months some say up to about a year and so he went along as business as usual if you will in the midst of that whole circumstance staring him in the face all the time That's the insidiousness, the sinfulness of sin. And so our question is, once David was confronted by his sin, convicted, it was unmasked, and that you remember by the prophet Nathan who came to David and and laid out a story that showed David the depths of his sin. Once that happened, how did David respond that is how should we think about our sin how did david think about it how should we feel about our sin how did david feel about it and what should we really do about it that was all last week just notice very quickly how we should think about our sin david owned it he says it's mine immediately after nathan speaking to david this story which convinced david of his sin he said i have sinned i have sinned and also He says, I have sinned against God. That's how we're to understand our sin. It isn't that he didn't sin against Bathsheba. He did. It isn't that he didn't sin against Uriah, her husband. He did. It isn't that he didn't sin against the nation of Israel. He did. And his adultery and his covetousness and his lust and his lying and the murder, all of that, he sinned against people. But he realized first and foremost, at the very guts of it, the very base of it, the foundation of it, his sin was against God. Because it's God who made us, and God who made us to reflect him, to glorify him, to reflect him. And thus God lays out law, 
that reflects his glory, that reflects his character. And he says, you as mine, you as my creation, should live this way. And, and we really should. In other words, we shouldn't buck against it at all because, because this is God. This is the wise one, the loving one. He knows everything about everything. He knows everything about life. He knows everything about us. He knows exactly how we were made and formed. And he says, now live this way. This is life. And when we transgress, violate that law, that's sin. A word that we use for sin is often trespass. If you grew up in the Methodist church, you grew up saying, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's a valid translation. Confusing when a bunch of Christians get together and Presbyterians are into debts and debtors, but it, it, it works. But the notion of trespass means that I go where I shouldn't go. You see a trespass, do not trespass sign. It says, don't go here. And so we trespass the law of God. That is to say, we don't go where we ought. The word sin means that we miss God's mark, which means we don't go where we should. So sin covers the whole gamut. We're not going where, we're going where we ought not, and we're not going where we ought. That's sin. And David recognizes all of that. That's how we're to think about it. And then he says, what this really boils down to, what this really is, is that it's evil. That gets close and personal. It's evil. Because you see, on the one hand, it's against God who loves us, who made us, who desires the best for us, who would never tell us to do anything that wasn't in our best interest. And yet we, we, we reject his love, we reject his truth, we reject the fact that he made us, that he's king. We reject all of that and we go our own way. We say, I'm wiser. My way is better. My passions are pure. I should follow my own heart, all of those things, rather than God. And he says, no, that's evil. And the evil intent of sin is really to destroy us. There's a very, if I could put it this way, convicting expression that comes from the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah in chapter 2. It helps us, I think, with this evilness and ultimately then the feeling that comes from it. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5, he writes, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? That's God. He's saying, how did I fail you? What wrong have I ever done to you that, that, you, that you would not follow me? And he says, that's the very essence of sin. That's God coming to us and saying, how have I mistreated you? What have I done wrong here? What, what law do I have that isn't in your best interest? How have I failed you? Why are you going your own way? Do you feel that? The evil of that, of our own sin against God. He's done nothing that would cause us to flee from him to go our own way. And then he says this, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness? Because you see, that's the evil of the sin. It takes us to that which is worthless, certainly worth less than following after God and worthless because in comparisons, it's nothing. What and went after worthlessness and then notice this, the end result is destruction and became worthless that's what sin wants to do in us 
That's what we call it. Unmasked. That's why I say sin needs to be unmasked. It doesn't present itself that way to us. It presents itself as pleasure and power and satisfaction and all that. But the truth is, it, it means that we're fleeing from God and we're going after that which is ultimately worthless and makes us worthless. It destroys us. You see, That's the evil of sin. And then we notice too that we stand condemned because of sin. David says, uh, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You're right about this, God. You're right. I stand judged, condemned, really by you. And then we find that we can't escape the situation. We're, we're helpless in it. On the one hand, he says, uh, I know, verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In other words, once convicted, we stand guilty and we, in and of ourselves, can't do anything about that. We did it. We, we can't make up for it. We can't redo it. It happened. That's it. So in myself, it's always before me. I, I, I can't do anything about it. I'm helpless. I can't pay anything to make it happen. I can't do penance so that so it'll wipe this away. I can't do three good things for the one bad thing because I still did that bad thing. And so I'm, I'm helpless before it. And even worse than that, David makes note of the fact that, 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 that it really comes from our very nature, this sin. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. That is, my very nature is twisted. It's the meaning of iniquity. I'm twisted. And so here I am. I can't escape it. And so, so how do we feel when confronted with this sin? Well, we, on the one hand, we feel very helpless. What can I really do about this? I'm already guilty. I'm already twisted. I can't change the twistedness. I can't change the guilt. What am I going to do with, with this? And there's a sense in which uh, this guilty feeling is there, he says, because he wants his transgressions blotted out. He feels dirty. He wants to be washed. He feels estranged from God because he wants to be cleansed and purged with hyssop, which is a, a technical term, if you will, a, an expression that gives, makes allusion to Old Testament cleansings, using hyssop to sprinkle and to paint blood and water so that we can be clean and therefore stay in the presence of God. That's how we ought to feel in the presence of our sin. Not only that, David felt crushed. Verse 8, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken rejoice. He says that when he refers to his bones, he's my very life. My very life has been broken by this sin. It's been broken by it. So he feels that when he's convicted. So that's the nature of this, how we, how we think about it, how we, how we feel about it. And then notice what he does about it. He appeals not to himself, but he appeals to the mercy of God. He says, I haven't done anything. It's, it's evident by my sin. I haven't done anything. So God, I appeal to your mercy, to your goodness, to your compassion. And this word mercy is what we would call a covenant word. God has promised to deal with his people in particular ways. And he promises to his people to be merciful. And so when David appeals to the mercy of God, he's appealing, appealing to the very heart of God for his people. And he's saying, be merciful, be compassionate to me. See my misery. And the word mercy 
means that you see one's misery, you see one's difficulty, and you cannot not help. So mercy means I see it, and I'll come and help. I must. And so David, appealing not to himself, I'll do better, God. None of that. He appealed to the mercy of God. That's what he did. And he appeals uh, to this mercy. And, and, and the good news is that God is in fact merciful. He was merciful to David. Forgave his sins. Remembered his sins no more. He blotted out his transgressions. He erased them. Doesn't mean God forgot necessarily because God isn't forgetful. But God chooses to remember them no more. In the, in the scripture, the word rem, to remember means I'm going to act upon what I know to be true. So thus, when God makes the promise to blot out or to not remember our sins, he's saying, I'm not going to act what I know to, what I know to be true. I know you to be a sinner. I know you to be guilty. I'm not going to act on it. I'm going to blot it out. I'm going to erase it, if you will. Wash me, cleanse me. And then he says, let me hear, verse 8, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Well, the joy and gladness that he would hear is this rejoicing in heaven over, as the scripture says, every sinner who repents. There's a great joy and glory. God isn't reluctant to do this. He says, let me hear your joy, God, in forgiving me. And, and let your joy, through the words, you're forgiven. Enable me uh, to rejoice. He says, let the bones that you've broken, actually, literally, it means that the bones that you've broken dance. Rejoice is the Baptist translation, uh, or my translation. I'm not much of a dancer. Uh, but, but that's this sense, you see. I want to rejoice. I want to dance so that my whole life reflects this forgiveness, you see. And, and, and if we really get it, if we really understand what God has done, that's the sense of it. We realize how desperate we were, how helpless we were, how hopeless we were. And now all that is taken care of. And we should then rejoice. And what keeps us from rejoicing is either we just get so used to it, or we really don't realize how desperate we were, or we, realize we, don't, we, we don't realize what really God has done. That's what Sundays are for, right? So we get the gaze back. So we realize how desperate we were. We realize what Christ has done. So that we can be free of it and rejoice. Right? You should leave this place today with that sense of joy, of rejoicing. Because of what Christ has done. Now, there's something else. That's all review. There's something else that's part of David's prayer that we really mustn't miss. It goes along with this notion of confession. It's, it's, it's hand in glove. It's, it's part and parcel of it. You, you can't have one really without the other. Both of these go together because they're both founded upon the reality of sin and its evilness and its plot to destroy us. It, 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 they're both based on our understanding of that, our feeling of that. And this is something that we must do in our prayers first and foremost. Not simply to confess, but there's something else as well. And that is that we need to plead with God 
to change us. It's called repentance. It's this desire for change to take place in our lives. As I said earlier in the service, God has determined not simply to save us in our sins, but to save us from our sins. And once we realize what sin is, what it's out to do, what it's intent in our lives to destroy us, then not only do we want to be forgiven from it, but we want to be freed from it. Not only do we want to be pardoned, but we want to be pure. Because it's one thing to be forgiven, great. But then we say, but, but I really don't want to go back there. Now the difficulty, of course, in our lives is that we live in between the original sin of Adam and Eve and the redemption that came through Christ and his return. If you can think about it in this paradigm, we have the fall, creation, let's start there, creation, God created in his image, then the fall, Adam and Eve sinned, and then the redemption that comes in Jesus that brings forgiveness of sin that, as we read in Romans 6 earlier, that takes the penalty of our sin and breaks the power of our sin. And one day, we'll live in a situation in glory and after the return of Christ where sin will not be present. Right now, we live in between. Right now, the penalty is taken, the power has been broken, but the presence of sin is still here. And so we're living now in this time of, of what we call being sanctified. Or if we want to translate it literally, it would be being holified, being made holy before God. And, and we're being purged of our sin, if you will. And so Romans 6 that we read, uh, Paul is writing to them and says, listen, I want you to understand what took place when Christ died. And when you believed, the penalty was taken, the power was broken. So now I want you to consider yourself, count yourself, think of yourselves as one dead to sin and alive to Christ. So, so present the members, the instrument, the members of your body as uh, not to sin, but, but to God for righteousness, you see. So, so do that. That's how we're to think. And we know that we fail. We still sin, so we go back through the process of confession. But there's this longing for us, longing in us, that we be freed from the the real presence of sin. You might remember if you were here some months ago, we were talking about prayer. And we said that when we pray, what informs our praying is the desire for the kingdom of God. What informs our praying is the desire for the kingdom of God. And so, if we want to know how to pray rightly, a great help to us is to think about what is life like in glory after we die? What will life be like after the return of Jesus? See, that's, that's what we long for. And so our prayers are informed by that longing. And so we pray for the lost. What do we pray for? We pray that they be saved. Why? Because what we want to see is the kingdom of God. We want to see the rule of Christ. So we pray for them to... to, to, to to, to be saved so that they would know Christ as will be true in glory and in the time to come. When people are sick, we pray for their healing. Why? Because it's a longing of our souls. We pray that, that they be healed because that's what it will be like in glory and 
in the time and the day that is to come after Christ. We know that's what is true. That's, the, that, that's what's been put within us. That's what we desire. And so even now, as believers in Christ, yes, we confess our sins that we might be forgiven and live in that forgiveness and all of that, but we also pray the longing of what should be in our hearts, and that is we long to be freed from it so that we would live as we'll live in glory. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. We say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In me, God. So that's what David picks up. Notice verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Notice what he's praying. First, he says, create in me a clean heart. The word create, same word in Genesis 1 about creation, God making something that isn't there, if you will. And he says, God, I don't have a clean heart. That are expressed pretty clearly in verses 1 through 9. Right? I don't have a clean heart. You've forgiven me, but, but now create, make in me a pure, a clean heart. Heart is the very guts of a person, the very essence of a person. It's in one's heart that one thinks. It's in one, one's heart that, that one feels. It's in one's heart that one loves and hates and understands. It's in one's heart and out of one's heart that one makes decisions. Right? It's the very essence of who we are. It's all of that. And he says, so I want that God to be clean. So make that in me, a clean heart. What that means is that you'll have a right or an upright or a steadfast spirit. Heart and spirit could be used really interchangeably there. But spirit, this sense of this is the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart. Make it clean and to make it right upright, steadfast. That means faithful. That means that I'll persevere in faithfulness. That's what I really long for, God. You know, take David's situation. The sin with Bathsheba, I doubt, was an isolated incident in his life. Most of our sins aren't isolated incidents. I remember once I was stopped by a policeman And I said, what did I do? And he said, you glided through that stop sign there. And I said, no, I didn't. (laughs) And and I said, I've never, and this is true, I said, I've never been stopped before by a policeman for any violation. And he said, well, studies show, I don't know how they knew this. Studies show that if you've been stopped once, you probably did it at least 14 times. (laughs) And I think, you know, it's like, the, you know, what, what do they say? That, that uh, 82% of all statistics are made up on the spot. But, um, <laughs> but, but I resonate with that because I can look at my own sins and, and, and I want to be able to say, well, I've never done that before. <laughs> Karen Eustace says, yes, you have 18 times just yesterday. Right? It's not an isolated insulin. It's ever before. He says, God, I see the misery. I'm tired of this. 
I know what it's about to do to me, this sin. So, so God, give me a clean heart. That's my desire. Give me a right spirit. And then he says, then in verse 12, uphold me or sustain me with a willing spirit. That is, make my perseverance, my sustaining, my faithfulness come from a heart that's willing to follow after you. That's the longing of the heart of a convicted sinner who gets it, who understands the nature of sin. Isn't that we wallow in it? We just say, God, I want to be freed from this. That's a longing of our heart. That's a good longing. Negatively, David lays it out like this. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. It isn't to say that David thinks that once you're a believer or any of that, that God removes his presence or takes his spirit. That's not the point. But he says, God, I get it. In my humility, I'm casting myself on your mercy. I don't deserve your presence. I don't deserve your spirit. But I need it. Without your presence, without your spirit, making in me a clean heart, an upright spirit, a willing spirit, I'm dead in the water. Please, God, do that. You see, that's the repentance side of this. Repentance means a change. The Old Testament notion of repentance was often uh, laid out by the prophets when God would say, return to me. That is, turn, leave where you are, and come to me. New Testament notion of repentance is that plus this nuance that says what you have here is a change of heart, if you will, a change of understanding, a change of thinking, a change of passion, a change of desire. There's a change that goes on in you and you go, I see it. And in this case, I see what sin is going to do to me. Leave me condemned before God destroy my life and my relationships. I see what it does. So the repentance means, okay, I get it. Here's my desire, the desire of a repentant one, to leave that behind and to follow after Christ. What does that look like? Quickly. 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. Paul is experiencing with the church in Corinth something very similar to what took place between the prophet Nathan and David. That is, the people in Corinth had been in grievous sin that they were denying. Paul writes to them and does what Nathan did more directly. He just simply points out the sin. And he said, when you got my letter, it produced in you sorrow. It produced in your grief. It produced in you grief. And and Paul says, and that made me happy. Now, the reason it made him happy is that it said, because you should be grieved about this, and it produced in you the right kind of grief, the right kind of sorrow. And we all know both of these. In the old language, the first was referred to attrition as opposed to contrition. The first being that I've been caught in my sin, and I'm sorry that I've been caught in my sin because I really love my sin. I don't want to give up my sin. I don't want to be punished for my sin. I don't want to make anybody else upset about my sin. I'm embarrassed by having been caught, but the truth of the matter is I don't have any intent of leaving it, and if I've got to leave it, that makes me sad. See, that kind of grief is grief that's concerned with oneself. Godly grief, as Paul puts it, 
the grief he was happy they got. It was the grief that said, I've sinned against God. I've hurt God. And this is going to destroy my life. I've got to be forgiven and I've got to get out of this. He said, it produced in you that kind of grief. And here's how he describes it. Verse 10 in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance, change of mind, change of heart, change of direction that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. That is, it doesn't do you any good at all. You just remain miserable. Because even if you're not engaged in that particular sin, you're sad. Whereas godly grief, if you're not participating in that kind of sin again, you're happy. So worldly grief just leads to death. And again, please, we all know both of these. We all know that sometimes we get worldly grief before we get godly grief. We all know that there are times when we're convicted of our sin and we really regret that we got caught because we really like it. That's just true. So we needn't pretend that David nor the people in Corinth were unlike us. But you see, it must come to this godly grief that says, no, this is wrong. It's against God it will destroy. I must be rid of it. So he says, verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. That is seriousness. You finally get it. You realize sin has been unmasked. You're now in this kind of sorrow that you say, if I live in this, I'll die. You're earnest about it. What eagerness to clear yourselves. That doesn't mean you make a defense to say, I really didn't do this. But but what this earnestness to clear yourself is that you want to distance yourself from this sin as far as possible. You don't want to be identified with it anymore. That's why real repentance means that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to convince others that I'm really repentant. I've talked with men who've had affairs, who've committed adultery, and I said, all right, you, you confess, you repent. Here's what you must do. You must now live an open life before your wife. You must now turn in all your receipts to her. You must now be accountable to her in every moment that you're away from her to convince her that this is no longer true of you. And you need to be happy about that. Real repentance is, of course I'll do that. I want her to know. We once had a man who was a thief and he gave us a present. And I said, I need to see the receipt. (laughs) And he had it in his pocket and he gave it to me. He said, I really bought this. I haven't bought anything in years. But I really bought this. I said, good. That's repentance, you see. Liars need to have their word questioned and be happy about that until all are convinced that that person is no longer lying. That's repentance, you see. I'm I'm eager, I'm earnest, I'm eager to clear myself in this matter. That's what repentance is. He says, what indignation, you hate it. What fear, you see, sin should make us afraid. My son Josh, when he was a little kid, would listen to Bible stories on tape all the time. And um, uh, in fact, his son is with us this weekend and we pulled out those cassette tapes for James to listen to and he didn't know how to do it. (laughs) 
There's no screen to touch. There's, you know, he doesn't know what to do with these cassette tapes. But uh, Joshua would never listen to Genesis chapter 3. And me being the theological purist, I said, you got to listen to the whole thing, bud. And he said, no, Dad, I can't listen to Genesis 3. And I said, why not? And he says, because it scares me. That's where Adam and Eve sinned. And sometimes our kids get it. Sin should scare us. It should make us afraid. One of my own personal disciplines with my own sin when I'm living repentantly is I take various sins that are either in my mind or some that I do and I play them out to the end of it. What if that lie got played out to the end? What if that lust got played out to the end? What if that materialistic uh, desire played itself out to the end? What then? And I see what it would do to me. And that scares me. Sin should make us afraid, you see. It's nothing that's light. What fear, what longing, zeal, what punishment. He says, listen, I'm willing to undergo whatever it takes in order to, to get this thing out of my life. That's real repentance. And so you remember Martin Luther, when he wrote his 95 thesis, his first one was this. He says, when God calls a person to follow Jesus Christ, he calls them to a life of repentance. This constant life of changing mind changing heart on the basis of what is true and leaving sin behind we do it all the time the 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 sort of habit of life isn't it the habit of life is to hear the truth look at our lives make confession pray create in me a clean heart O god and renew a right spirit within me cast not your presence from Uh, Cast not your presence from me. Uh, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Renew in me a willing heart. That's it, isn't it? That's the pattern of life. Truth. Believing. Confession. Repentance. Dependence on the Holy Spirit. To live. All of this, of course, is based on the mercy of God. I don't bring anything, as we said last Sunday, that's good to this. <laughs> I bring my sin, my helplessness, my dependence. And I cast myself on the mercy of God to forgive, to bring repentance, to transform. good news for us is that Jesus is the very mercy of God. We look at the cross, sin unmasked. We see the evil intent of it even as Jesus' life is destroyed as the guilt of sin is put upon him. The condemnation that comes, we see the terror of it. But we also see the very mercy, the love of God in the cross. Because we see God willingly, shall we even say, joyfully giving his son that we might have the 
penalty of sin paid, the power of sin broken, the day to come when the presence of sin will be done, so that in this life, as we live, we plead for the mercy of God, and he is gracious to give it. You see that on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He was with his disciples on that Passover night and he took the bread that was there and he broke it and he said, this is the mercy of God. This is my body which is given for you. And in the same manner, he took the cup and again after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He said, this is the mercy of God. He shed my blood so the penalty would be paid. The power would be broken. The presence would be taken. Let me ask you just to bow your heads and Take a moment, quiet before God. Make this prayer your own on the mercy of God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my sin. Cleanse me from my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me, sustain me, uphold me by a willing spirit. Take a moment quietly. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for unmasking sin. We give you thanks for revealing to you, to us, your mercy in Jesus Christ. Now we pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we would know that we're in the presence of the very mercy of God. Jesus himself. He's not here physically, Father, but spiritually. His presence is as real as ours. May we know the mercy of God. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you, as always, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. 
It's the table of our Lord Jesus. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. To receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners and who desire to live that life of truth, faith, confession, repentance, dependence. If that's true for you, I invite you to come. If you're struggling with that, I invite you to come because this is the place we meet the Lord. I invite these two sections to come down this aisle to my left, these aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. (sighs) Know the mercy of God. Create in me a clean heart. Please come.